like the old Inspector Crusoe movies. Anybody still like those? You know, I like the old channels where they show the old movies, and uh, I have a funny, sort of a funny story about one of the times in which Inspector Crusoe is doing one of his really, really crazy things. He walks up to a guy, and there's a guy, I think if I remember right, he's sitting somewhere, and there's a dog next to him, and Inspector Crusoe walks to him and says, Monsieur, did your dog bite? Now, dog is French for dog. Does your dog bite? He said, no, monsieur, my dog does not bite. And so Inspector Crusoe reaches down there, and the, rah, 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 and the dog just chewing on his hand, you know. And he finally gets it away, and he turns to the guy and said, monsieur, I thought you said your dog does not bite. He said, monsieur, that is not my dog. Yeah. Inspector Crusoe always makes me laugh. Patty and I walk in our neighborhood. Now, we live in the country, and, uh, but our neighborhood is not really a country. It's a country neighborhood. It's, it's a Wichita country neighborhood. You know what I'm talking about. And, and so as we're walking in our neighborhood, there, there's a certain house as we always travel the same route. That's my wife. She's very consistent in always traveling the same route. She likes to go that route. Any, anytime I try to veer off, she wants to go the same way. But as we're traveling sort of north, there are some ho- only houses to our left on the uh, west side of the street. There's a field on the right on the east side, and as we're walking by, there's a house where there's a little bitty dog, and sometimes, I mean, it's a little bitty dog, and sometimes our neighbor is out there letting the dog do its business, and uh, so when we're walking by, the dog comes up, you know, and he's a little bitty fella, and uh, he doesn't really intimidate me at all, because, man, I could drop kick him in, in, in no time, but the dog, you know, doesn't want me close to its domain, and so we're on the opposite side of the street, but he comes all the way up kind of, you know, where it, it, it's, it's discerning too. It knows that that guy's pretty big, and I'm not that big, but yeah, I'm going to be brave enough, and I'm discerning in this reality, knowing that this is a small dog, and I could drop kick it if it got too close, and so we just kind of ignore each other, and the dog barks, and we laugh, and the neighbor waves, and we wave, and you know, whatever, and we go on. A couple of houses just north of that house, on the same west side of the street, there is a Doberman. I don't know how that dog knows not to get out of the, you know, the area. Uh, maybe they have a, one of those invisible fences. I'm not quite sure. But they've moved into the neighborhood since we've been there, and they have a Doberman. I don't know about you, but Dobermans are pretty intimidating. Black. He's large. And so as we're walking by, that Doberman happens to always be somewhere in the front yard for some reason. Maybe that's its time to do business as well. Maybe we need to select another time, you know, to walk, but that's the time for dogs to do business in our neighborhood, I guess, and so it's out on the front yard as well, and, and that dog will kind of look at us, and we'll look at it, and both, you know, the dog and us, he's trying to discern, are we a threat, and we're trying to discern, is he a threat, and I don't, I don't know how this works, but every time Patty and I are walking, the the fact that she moves herself in such a way that I am always between her and the dog. <laughs> As if I would be a better morsel for the dog than her. One bite with me and he'd drop dead. 
But, uh, you know, and, and I'm feeling a little bit intimidated because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very discerning. I'm watching that dog, and he's watching me, and there'd be no way in the world that I'd walk up and try to pet that, do- that dog because I would be afraid that it would maul me like Inspector Crusoe. And so we just kind of mind our own space, and we walk on. Jesus is telling us to be discerning because there are dogs, and there are hogs, These are wild animals. They are not domesticated house pets. Although I did see a lady who tried to take her pig on the airplane the other day and they kicked her off. Did you see that? People are weird, man. Who has a pet pig in their house? Now, if you have one today, I'm sorry. You're just strange. Okay? Pigs don't belong in the house. But these are not domesticated animals. They are wild, ravaging animals animals that are constantly in the pursuit of gratifying their flesh. And they will do whatever they need and use whoever they can to satisfy their own carnal, fleshly appetites. And they are never satisfied. And Jesus is saying to us that we need to be discerning. Because in some of the relationships that we have and some of the relationships that we will have, some of those people are classified as dogs and hogs who are not disciples of Christ. And he says that we need to be discerning. Jesus has just talked about us last week about being very, very, being very careful not to judge anyone. And he's saying we're not to condemn But we are to look in the mirror and to analyze and evaluate our own spiritual condition. And once we have then, upon reflection of our own spiritual condition, and we've confessed our own sin, it's only after that that we can see clearly to take the speck out of our neighbor's eye. Then we can help. And so he's talking about the importance of us doing that. Now Jesus rolls right into the next verse, which is not really reflective of what he has said so far, but he does say that he wants us, before we go to somewhere, someone else with the truth about their lifestyle or about their sin, be careful that when you take that which is holy and that which is precious and you cast it before dogs and pigs or dogs and hogs, that that you need to anticipate a hostile reaction because their nature is conflictual with the truth. And he says we need to use discernment because there are some people that are flat out hostile to that which we hold precious. And that precious treasure that we have, I believe, is about the sacrificial atoning death of Christ on the cross, if not, in a nutshell, the gospel of Jesus. For the gospel is not holy, and the gospel is not a prized, precious possession to everyone in our world. And I'm going to say this, and it's going to make some of you sort of, your antennas are going to go up, and I'm going to say this, I'm going to say it, just here it comes. The gospel is not for everybody. The gospel is not for everybody. But everyone should have an opportunity to receive the gospel. And yet those who will hear the gospel will reject it and they will, re- they will not receive it. They just won't. Not everyone is going to be saved. That's a fact. Look with me to Luke chapter 2, very quickly. I just want to go there. I've got a couple of verses. I'm going to read them quickly because I don't have time, which I did. But Luke 2.10. When we see that 
that Mary and Joseph made the journey to Bethlehem and Mary finally found a nesting place inside of that stable in that manger and they wrapped Jesus in swaddling clothes and they placed him in that manger. Angels appeared to shepherds out in the field. Notice the selection of God. He didn't choose to announce the birth of Messiah in Jerusalem where there were tens of thousands of hundreds of people. He went to some shepherds in the field in his sovereignty and he announced the birth of the Messiah. And an angel appeared to them in the middle of the darkness and said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The gospel of Christ is for all the people. It's for everyone. Everyone should hear the gospel, for it is for everyone. 1 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul is writing through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, this is good, and it is pleasing to the, in the sight of God, our Savior. Notice as he describes what is good and what is desiring of God, who desires all people to be saved. God desires all people to be saved. He wants everyone to be saved. God is not a sovereign God up in, the, up in the heavens sitting on a throne saying, you know, I want some of my creation because God created all life and everyone who, who has life has been given life by the Father. We call that common grace. And so every common grace act of God in which he has bestowed life to all human beings, he desires that all people be saved. That is his passion. That is his heart. He desires that people be saved. But notice in 2 Peter 3.9, inspired of the Holy Spirit, the writer says, The Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you. He says, not wishing that any should perish. God does not want, nor does he wish, nor does he desire that anyone perish in that anyone die without saving grace and end up in eternal condemnation in a place called hell. For people without Christ end up spending all eternity in hell. That's biblical. Christ spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. And here we have, he says that he does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. How is the method or the means by which we are saved? It is repentance. The only way to be saved is through repentance. God desires, he hopes, he wants, he wishes, he longs for everyone to be saved. But the only way man can be saved is through repentance. That means man must recognize Christ as the solution to their sin, receive him as their savior, commit to him the lordship of their life, turn from sin and turn to follow him and become a disciple of Christ to be converted through repentance. The only means and method by which we can enter into a relationship with God the Father and be saved from our sin is through, without repentance, there is no salvation. Salvation is not a three-sentence prayer where you say a little sentence prayer and all of a sudden, bam, you're saved. It is a literal act of the heart and of the mind where I'm turning from myself and my sin and I am physically spiritually, emotionally, and mentally turning in repentance to now walk with God and to follow Jesus, to become a disciple. Repentance. Romans 2, 4 and 5 says, Or do you presume 
on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance of his patience, not knowing that God's kindness, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. See, the reason for the delay of Christ's return is because he is being patient because he's still working and he's still calling out men and women unto salvation. And until his work is completed, Christ is not going to return. And there are some in the Bible who were abusing the mercy and the grace of God, thinking, ah, he's not coming anytime soon, and so therefore I can live any way I want to. And he said, no, 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 no. The reason he's delaying in his return is because he wants some to repent, and he's leading you to repentance. But notice verse 5, but because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There are some who have a hard and impertinent heart and who are not receptive and who will reject the gospel. They just are. How do you think Christ died on the cross? Notice what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he, Jesus, began to teach them teaching his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and then be killed and after three days rise again. Who killed Christ? It was our sin. But what group of people? Those who rejected Jesus. People rejected Christ when he came, and people are still going to reject Christ today. Not everyone is going to receive Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. I don't know about you, but that not only breaks the heart of God, but it breaks my heart, and it should break your heart as well. The fact that people deliberately, intentionally, because of the hardness and the callousness of their own heart, are rejecting the very gospel of Christ by which they are to be saved. And their eternal condemnation is already sealed because of that reality. Jesus lamented over that. Listen to his prayer in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often will I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. You are not willing. They were not willing to receive the Messiah, to repent of their sin, and to enjoy his presence and his power over their sin. They were unwilling to receive him. And so we go to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, where he says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn against you. Notice the passage, do not. That is an absolute denial. That is not a suggestion. It is a command from Christ himself to his disciples do not my disciples give dogs what is holy do not throw your pearls before swines don't do it you may be tempted but don't do it do not disciples follow the commands of the lord and jesus says it is my command that you not give dogs what is a dog a dog as i said earlier is a wild animal it's not a domestic house pet that we have today some of you have wild animals in your house you call domestic but they're not really domestic 
And my son has one of those big labs, and it's, it's, it runs the roost. I mean, it's, it's domestic, but it tears stuff up. A dog is, a, uh, is, is an animal that, that Jesus is using here to reflect, not a house dog, but a, but a ravaging, scavenging animal that is constantly hungry, whose appetite is never filled, and who is always then seeking to satisfy that fleshly, carnal appetite. And it's saying, do not give a dog what is holy. The word holy is symbolic. It means that which has been offered to the altar, that which is placed upon the place of sacrifice. Why would they put meat on the altar? It was a sacrificial atoning object by which it was then given to God. It was consecrated and dedicated to God. And he's saying, do not give the meat that you have offered on the altar of sacrifice. Don't give that holy piece of meat to a scavenging flesh Dog, don't do that. You wouldn't do that. And, and the Jew who heard this would say, absolutely, we would never do that. But what they didn't realize, he was talking about them. You don't take that which has been consecrated and dedicated upon the altar of God, that which is holy unto the Lord, and give it to someone who is going to use that holy sacrament, that blessed thing that, that has been given to God to gratify and satisfy its own carnal, fleshly appetite. Now, some believe that, they're, that Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. In which Jesus is take, he, he's he referencing the, the Pharisees in which they have taken the, the holy word of God and the things of God and they have perverted them for their own fleshly gain. And they had certainly done that. And we've seen that in the Sermon on the Mount in which they had, had taken the, the, the holy sacred things of God and had so corrupted them in order to use them for their own personal gain. That's all they were in it for was for themselves. They weren't in it for God. And as I looked at this scripture, and I wrestled with it now for about a week and a half, it helped me realize that, that, that there are some today who are guilty of doing the same thing. Have you ever heard anybody say, Jesus died for me? Ever heard anybody say that? Maybe you've said that. Me. And I got to thinking about how me becomes the idol rather than the one who died. Me becomes the focus. Me becomes centric. Me becomes idol worship where it is all about me and it ceases to become about him. And we have a consumer culture today in most churches where it's all about me and it's not about him. I come for what's in it for me. And if you don't give me what I want so I can feed my carnal flesh... I'm going to go somewhere else where they will. And there are plenty of churches that do because dogs are not meant to receive the sacred, holy, consecrated things of God because all they will do was gobble them up to satisfy their own flesh. Think about what you see on some of the charismatic television stations today. Give to what? Get. Reap so you can receive. And the only motivating factor for giving is what? 
Me. I'm the center of the universe. How narcissistic have we become as Christ followers? It's not about me. It's not about thee. It's about him. And it's only about him. And it's all for him. And it's all for his glory. He didn't come so that I could be happy. He came so that I could be saved. And most of the time, being a disciple means that I'm not going to be happy because happy is about happenstance. It's not about joy. And we, we've got this whole thing all mixed up in our, in our faith as disciples of Jesus. Simply, you know, the, uh, I, think, I think James, was it James, who wrote that there are some who are praying and not getting what they pray for because they're praying so that they can spend it on their own fleshly desires. Imagine that. Christians doing that? Uh-huh. Even today. Imagine the Apostle Paul say, when he said in his book, in, in his letter to the Roman church, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. There were believers he was writing to in Rome who were absorbing the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of the Lord and saying, you know what? I'm under grace, so I'm just going to sin all I want. Is that not like a dog who would abuse the sacred sacrifice of the atoning death of Jesus on the cross, his mercy and his grace, and use it to gratify our own fleshly appetites, knowing that even though we commit it, I'm going to be forgiven? Are we any different than the people that Jesus is addressing? Notice he says in the same command, he said, and do not throw your pearls before swine. Same, do not under any circumstance. This is also an absolute denial. It is a command, not a suggestion. Do not under any circumstances throw your pearls. A pearl is a very precious Commodity, it comes from an oyster, it's shiny, it's beautiful, it's valuable, it, it, it's one of a kind. He said, don't take that pearl. Remember, J Jesus gave us another parable about a guy who found the pearl of great price and he went and sold it everything he could to, to possess it. And that pearl is the gospel. And he said, don't take the pearl, which is symbolic of the gospel, and just fling it out there. This is without direction. It's not really without an intentionality. You just kind of throw it out and hope it lands somewhere, you know? I, I think there's another lesson in there about how we share the gospel. You just go, well, if it lands somewhere, it lands somewhere. I'm just going to throw it out there. About intentionality. But he said, do not throw your pearls before swine. I mean, there was anything more detestable to a Jew than a, than a pig? They would not eat pork, and they were missing a lot, weren't they? I mean, I'm kind of like Babe on that, on that show. Pork is a nice, sweet meat. And if it's done right, man, it's good. may not be good for my arteries. I know. Brother Don, I know it's not good. But it's good. And, and a Jew would never be caught raising pigs, domesticating pigs, much less do anything with pigs. Only a pagan would do that. And sometimes they call the Romans pigs. But I think here the pig is symbolic of, of a Pharisee, in my opinion, a Pharisee, who is looking for a Messiah that Jesus is not. 
follow along. Notice, don't throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot. Trample them underfoot. You see, when Jesus came, he was the promised Messiah. But the Pharisees were looking for a different Messiah. The people were looking for another Messiah. And when Jesus came, the majority of the people rejected him as their Messiah. They pushed him aside, and they proceeded then to look for someone else other than him. He was not the one that was going to satisfy their carnal, fleshly appetites. They wanted freedom from Rome when they needed freedom from sin. And they pushed him aside. Not only did they do that, but they turned on him and they attacked him. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And that's what they did. But I think also a pig is symbolic of someone that is completely and totally disinterested in the gospel. They don't see it as valuable. They don't see Jesus as the Messiah. You can present this pearl to them over and over and over again, and they'll push it aside, and they'll go straight to the trough so they can feed their carnality and their fleshly appetite because that, my buddy, is just not going to do it for me. Thank you very much. And so we have this command from Christ. So what does that mean for us? Literally, in three minutes, we're going to go through this outline. So watch. How do I practice discernment? I need to define my relationship with the Lord. You see, you can't give and you cannot throw what you don't possess. And I'm convinced that in this cultural Christianity that we have in the USA today, there are a lot of cultural Christians who have never been born again. Billy Graham said the greatest mission field is in our churches today because the majority of those in our churches are not saved. I conclude with that. I agree with that. There are many in the church today who may claim to be Christian because Christianity is a cultural thing. There are a lot of people during the holidays who are going to celebrate Christ must, but they don't know Christ. We need to find, do I have, do I possess what I'm trying to give to others? Secondly, I need to identify then my responsibility, and then as a disciple, I follow his command. His command is, do not give what's holy to dogs. Do not cast your pearl before swine. Just don't do it. And if I'm his disciple, I do what he says I am to do, and I don't do what he says I shouldn't do. That's my identity. I am a disciple, and I identify my identity by my obedience, my allegiance to what he commands me to do. And he says, do not. The S stands for secure. I need to secure then a proper evaluation then in the text, you notice, of how valuable my treasure is. I think some of us just flat out don't recognize how valuable the treasure or the pearl that we have that is called the gospel. It is the most precious commodity we have. It's what gave us our hope. It what ensures our salvation. And without the gospel, we would be eternally damned and doomed. The gospel of Jesus is a valuable, precious, holy, sacred 
commodity that he's entrusted to his disciples. And because we have it and because we possess it and because it's ours, we just don't throw it out there as if it weren't valuable. We protect it knowing how valuable it is and we only give it or throw it because we know it's going to be received. Notice the C stands for combat. We need to combat any preconceptions that we might possibly have. And these preconceptions are expectations. And these expectations is, is defined in this whole, this whole idea as I wrestle with this text. Why would, why would anybody throw what is valuable and what is precious to a dog or to a pig? Why would they do that? Well, there's a hope. There's an expectation. I know what I have is valuable, but, my, but I'm hoping that, that they will see the value in what I'm offering them. I, I, I would hope that as I give it to them, as I speak it to them, as I entrust it to them, that they too would see it as, as, as this precious prized commodity that, that cost Christ his life and his death on the cross, and they would value that. I, I want it for them more than they want it for themselves. Have you ever found yourself doing that? You want what they don't want. You want it more for them than what they want it for themselves. And, and you so long for them to be saved and for them to see the value of what you possess in the gospel of Christ. And, and you want to throw it out there and you keep throwing it out there. And they keep saying, ain't interested. Doesn't look good to me. There's an appeal. And I think we sometimes hope that maybe what we're offering they at some point will want to offer as well or receive as well the r stands for we need the e the e stands for embrace their spiritual condition the reason they reject it is because of their spiritual condition a dog is a dog and a pig is a pig and the only way to change a dog or a lost person into a safe person the only way to to change a degenerate unholy unclean animal like a pig into a righteous clean acceptable person in the presence of God is through the new birth. And the reason why they reject, because that's their nature to reject. They're lost. They're not, they don't have the appetites that you have. They don't have the desires that you have. They don't have the longings that you have. They don't have the goals that you have. They don't have the Savior that you have. Their Christmas is totally different than yours. While they may celebrate it, it's not the same. I talked to somebody this week, and you know, they have a family member, and they, they want, you know, but you can't want it for your family. You're going to have family members this, this holiday season going to come, and, and you want it for them, but, but they don't want it, and you can't figure out why they don't want it. You know why they don't want it? They don't have an appetite for it. Because lost people don't have an appetite for the things that disciples have an appetite for. That's their nature. And if they were to possess that which is holy, they would just tear it apart and ravel it and, and ravish it so that they could spit it on their own fleshly desires. Or they would push it aside and look for something else. They're just not interested. That's their nature, and that's why they're that way. And that should affect how we pray for them. The R stands for respect, their decision. I think sometimes we just don't find ourselves respecting their decision. We, 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 
you know, we want it for them more than they want it for themselves, and, and they say no, and they reject, and they refuse, and they resist, and they rebel, but we keep wanting it for them, and they keep saying no, and, and it's almost like, you know what, I've just got to respect your decision to say no, and I'm going to do what he says the next, just sort of walk away, neutralize their destructive behavior, because pretty soon what's going to happen is they're going to come after me like a, like a wild animal, and they're going to be violent, be destructive. And so I need to neutralize their destructive effect in my life. For that's what they did to Jesus. I want to close with one illustration in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me, and we're going to close right here. Matthew chapter 2. Go ahead and go to the next slide, if you would, on the PowerPoint. Here we have in Matthew chapter 2, we have this interesting... This interesting... Uh, thing in the, in the life of Christ in his birth. This is the Christmas season. When Christ is born in Bethlehem in Judea, it says in verse 1, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Here's some wise men in a foreign country way, way east of Jerusalem. They see a star. They've been studying the atmosphere, they know that the Messiah has been born. They have made the long journey to Jerusalem. They're riding their camels through the streets of Jerusalem asking, where is the Messiah? He's been born, and everyone in the city is clueless. Imagine their, their horror. I mean, they expected, I believe, to come to Jerusalem, and there was, there was a celebration, there's a party, the King of Kings, the Messiah has been born, the long-awaited one has arrived, and they come to Jerusalem, and no one even knows that he's been born. It freaks them out. And they continually ask people, where is the Messiah? We, we know he's been born, and no one knows where it finally gets back to Herod, these, these incredibly rich Good-looking, handsome guys riding camels are wanting to know where the Messiah is. He doesn't know, so he gathers his scribes and his, his Bible scholars together, and he says, I, I don't know about what do you know, and they tell him, hey, he's been born, and, and if he is born, he's born in a city called Bethlehem. And so what does he do? Then Herod summoned, verse 7, the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Why did he do that? He wanted to know how old Jesus was by now. There's a reason why he wants to know. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may go and worship him. If his desire was to worship Jesus, then why didn't God come to Herod and tell Herod when and where the baby was? Sound like divine selection to me. How about you? Because God knew what his reaction would be. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen went, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they, it wasn't, it wasn't about me, it was about him, they gave him their treasures. And they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and mirth. But don't overlook verse 12. Notice, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
God rerouted, redirected them saying, don't go tell Herod that you found the Christ child. They obeyed and they went a different route and they returned home a different way. And what did Herod do when he found out he had been duped? He sent his soldiers into Bethlehem to kill everyone, every child under two years old. Why would he do that? Because of his fallen nature. And his rejection and his refusal to worship Christ the King. There are people that you and I are going to run into that are just flat out hostile toward the gospel. Interesting that in Matthew 10, 14, Jesus said, If anyone of you will receive you and listen to your words, if they will not receive and listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or that city. Why would he say that? Because not everybody is going to receive. They're going to reject. Matthew 13, 58, And he, Jesus, did not do many mighty works. Where? In his hometown because of their unbelief. Jesus even refused to do miraculous things in his hometown because they would not believe. Paul, in Acts 13, but when, they saw the Jew, when, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. The Jews rejected Jesus. The apostle Paul was sent to the Gentiles. Paul, in Acts chapter 16, wanted to go to Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit refused and said, no, 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 I don't want you to go there, and rerouted him. Paul wanted to go to Asia, and the Holy Spirit said, no, I'm not working there. That's not where I want to send you. And he sent him to other places. What I'm saying by all of this, in very short conclusion, is this. We need to go where the Spirit leads us to go. For Jesus says in John chapter 5 that he went about seeing where God was at work and he joined God in what God was doing. He did not interject his will or his way. He simply did what God was doing and that was the secret. I don't like to call it the secret because it makes it seem like it's unrevealed but that was the, the, the way that he sought to do the work of evangelizing the community that God had sent him to evangelize. And I think it's important that you and I understand that not everybody is going to receive the gospel and how that should break our hearts. But yet the invitation that Jesus gives us is to reverence the gospel. And I wonder, do I reverence the gospel that he's entrusted to me? Do I see it as a sacred trust to give, and to share as he leads me to do so. For there are people right now that he's contacted and connected in your life in which he is moving and he is working and he's calling unto himself. And we need to be really attuned and, 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 and intuitive and, and connected to the Spirit so that we'll know exactly when and where the Spirit is leading so that as we share the Spirit, we're joining God with what God is doing and we'll see miraculous results.
But the fact is that as we do share, we need to understand that some will reject the gospel. But some will receive the gospel. So as we close today in this time of celebrating what God has done through the gospel of Jesus Christ, have you rejected the gospel or have you received the gospel? For that, I believe, is the most important decision of one's life. To receive. Receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior and commit to Him the Lordship, the leadership of your life. What say you to this greatest gift of Christmas that any God could ever give to any group of people that He created? other than his one only son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. song inside my heart.